Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is plant ecologist and writer Robin Wall Kimmerer. Kimmerer is a distinguished teaching professor of environmental biology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. She is also the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Kimmerer is the author of numerous scientific papers, literary essays, and two books, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. Of European and Anishinaabe ancestry, Kimmerer is an enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Kimmerer gave a lecture titled We the People, Expanding the Circle of Citizenship at the University of Oregon on March 13, 2018, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2017-18 Clark Lecturer in the Humanities. The lecture was part of the We the People series. Thank you, Robin, so much for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Among your various accomplishments, you are a distinguished professor of environmental science and forestry and an esteemed plant biologist. Tell us first about your path to the academy. How did you become a scientist? I think I was probably a scientist from the beginning <laughs> because I was lucky enough to grow up in the, in the fields and woods and uh, was always fascinated by, by plants and, and by why which one grew where and what all their relationships were. So I honestly can hardly remember a time when I, when I wasn't um, involved with plants in, in some way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're also of uh, Anishinaabe ancestry and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. How has your indigenous wisdom informed, transformed, and enlightened your science? Hmm, what a good question. My awareness of there being different ways of doing science mm -hmm. has been really important to me. I'm certainly trained in the Western tradition as a, as a plant ecologist, but I am also really have my feet deeply in, a, in thinking about plants in a different way. Mm -hmm. Plants not as object, but plants as, as subject. In my training as a Western scientist, we learn about plants, but my being as a, as a Potawatomi person is we learn from plants. And this acknowledgement that plants are our teachers. We say they're our oldest teachers. And so I've, I've always tried to bring both of those ways of knowing to my research, my teaching, and most importantly, I think, to, to my writing. It was actually an understanding that when I talk about plants only with a scientific voice, I felt as if I wasn't telling the truth about plants. Mm. Because by having to reduce my findings to p-value and a table and a graph, um, I was missing some of the most important parts. And, and that's when uh, storytelling, plant storytelling, enabled me to bring traditional wisdom and these um, deep observations of the green world together. And, and so storytelling is a, is a place where I can bring those ways of knowing together. Let's talk a little bit about that unique style. So as you've um, implied, you've published all these scientific articles and scholarly journals, but you also write these literary essays and these two powerful books of literary biology is a term that you've used. What is literary biology as you understand it? To me, literary biology invites the reader into the same wonder and curiosity that you feel as a, as a scientist, as a naturalist, 
constantly being schooled by the woods, schooled by, by, by the earth. And storytelling, because it engages certainly the mind, um, certainly the body and what we sense and, and we feel and we can observe. But the beauty of story is that it draws on those, on four ways of, of knowing that we think of in our Anishinaabe medicine wheel of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. And storytelling is, is a way to touch on all of those and bring them into a way that, that not only informs the reader about the marvelous nature of, of, of the living world, but enables you to see your relationship to it as well, or even to an imagine a different relationship with the living world. So let's talk a little bit more specifically. So you begin braiding sweetgrass by sharing the story of the Sky Woman. So first, could you tell us the story of the, sh of the Sky Woman? I would love to. One of the most powerful stories that I know, and I'll try to tell you a short version of it. <laughs> um, and this is a fragment of a creation story, which is shared by our Potawatomi people, as well as by our Haudenosaunee relatives. Um, and it is to say that in the beginning, there was just the sky world, where people lived very much as they do today on Earth, growing their gardens, raising their, their families. Um, one of the things that was striking about the sky world, though, is that there was a tree there that was called variously the Tree of Life, or the tree of light. And one day a, a great storm came through the sky world and toppled that tree. And we're told that the next morning, um, a beautiful young woman in our language, we call her Gij Kokwe, the sky woman, went out to where the tree had fallen. And, and she looked around it, it and, and of course saw where the roots had been pulled up and it had created a hole in the sky world. And when she went and she looked into that hole, it was only darkness. And the light from the sky world was shining through that hole. And so she looked closer and closer to try to see what was down there. But there was nothing. And she was deeply curious, maybe like a scientist, mm. and, and stood at the edge. And the earth at the edge of that hole started to crumble. And she fell. She reached out as she was falling to that tree and to stop her fall. But a branch of the tree broke off in her hand and she fell. And she fell in that shaft of light um, coming from the sky world. And I imagine how really terrified she must have been falling from the world that she knew into the complete unknown and into nothingness or what she thought was nothingness because below her, was the water world, of which she knew nothing. But that water world was full of other beings. And they looked up and they saw that sudden shaft of light and just a little speck. But as it came closer, they could see that it was a woman spiraling toward them. And so the geese all rose from the water and flew up to meet her. And they caught her in their, in their wings. And we're told that in that creation story, the very first encounter between the first human person and the rest of the living world was one of care and protection, indeed of rescue. And so they carried her down, they lowered her down to the surface of the water where all the other water beings were, including the great turtle. And the geese couldn't hold her forever. And the turtle said, here, let her rest on my back. 
And so she stepped from the wings onto to the turtle, and all the other beings said, well, good, we've, we've taken care of her, but she needs land. She needs a place to be. And so in the, the length and unfolding of that story, each one of the water beings said, I have heard that there is mud down there at the bottom of the water. That's what we need to make land. And so one by one from the mong, what we call the loon, the, the strongest swimmer of all, um, through all of the other animals, they each tried to get that mud for her, but they couldn't. And the, it was too deep, it was too far. And they, they came up empty until the only little muskrat was left. And he said, I'll try. And all of his relatives looked on skeptically like, yeah, if, if the sturgeon couldn't do it, what chance does the muskrat have? And, uh, so, but he tried and he, and he kicked his feet and flailed his little arms and he was gone a very long time. He was gone too long. And soon a little string of bubbles surfaced, followed by the limp body of the muskrat. And he had given his life trying to help this helpless human. And then when they looked in his hand was the earth, was the mud. He'd done it. He had done it. And in this remarkable gift that he retrieved for her, they put it in Sky Woman's hand and she spread it over the back of the turtle where she was sitting. And in such great gratitude for the gifts of, of these animal beings um, with whom she was a stranger, um, but they had given her this gift, she began to dance on the back of the turtle in a, in a dance of gratitude, which is the same dance that we do, do today, uh, the women's dance, where our moccasins never leave the ground to be caressing Mother Earth, wiping that mud all over Mother Earth. And as she danced and as she sang her songs of gratitude, the turtle began to grow until it becomes what we know today as, as Turtle Island. And in that wonderful teaching, it reminds us that the world was made not only by the gifts and contributions of all of the animal beings who were here before us, but in combination with human gratitude. It teaches us reciprocity, that in the beginning of the world, they were her life raft, and, and now we must be theirs. And in reciprocity for the gifts that they had given her, you remember that she had something in her hand when she came, and it was the tree of life on which every berry, every medicine, every tree, every grass was present on that, that twig from the tree of life. And so she took that and scattered the seeds all over Turtle Island, giving us the beautiful green earth that we have today and the teachings of reciprocity to care for it. You're uh, already at the, at the point of my next question, which is um, the honorable harvest. Tell us about the honorable harvest. The honorable harvest is this very sophisticated but ancient protocol for how we take from the earth. It reminds us that we have to take from the earth, also receive the gifts of the earth, because we can't photosynthesize. We, we have to um, take from the earth and remember that those are lives that are given 
to us. And these are teachings that were shared with me by many generous teachers in learning to pick berries and learning to harvest roots. It could be uh, fishing or, or taking firewood. Anytime we take from the earth, we're told that the first thing that we should remember is to never take the first one, to um, practice self-restraint. And it's an inherent conservation practice because if you don't take the first one, you'll never take the last. And then if we come to the second one, or maybe the fourth one, depending on your teachings, you then introduce yourself to that plant. And, and uh, you know, that might seem like a crazy thing. I saw this woman introducing herself to plants, but in a worldview where the plants are our relatives, that's not crazy. That's just good manners. You know, introduce yourself and then ask permission. Do you have enough of those berries? To, to share, could I have some of those leeks, some of your roots for, for dinner? And if you're going to ask permission, you also have to listen for the answer. And that's where it can get tricky. And you know, as a plant scientist, uh, science gives us lots of empirical, analytical ways to listen, to know whether we have permission or not. Is that population healthy enough to harvest from? But there are also intuitive ways that we can listen for that answer. But the most important part is that if you ask for permission and listen for the answer, if the answer is no, you have to go home empty-handed. It's a reminder that the earth does not belong to us, that those plants belong to themselves. And if we are granted permission, we take only that which we need. And of course, in today's world, it's really hard to tell our needs from our wants, isn't it? Um, and when we take something, we then also have to use everything that we've been given to not waste it, to remember that it's a life that's been shared with you. And so using it honorably means not wasting it. It also means saying thank you and expressing gratitude for the gift that you've been given. And that connects you to the whole web of gifts that we're given, and then to reciprocate that gift. In return for what has been given to you, what will you give back? You need to know that plant well enough to know what is it you should give back. Maybe you need to weed around it. Maybe you need to prune it. Maybe you need to carry those seeds to a new location. But in return for the gift, you need to give a gift of your own. And sometimes it is that gift of, of care, and sometimes it's a spiritual gift of, of leaving something behind of yourself as a, as a message to those plant people that they are respected and, 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 and thanked. And so this is our very ancient way by which we take from the world, be it fish or berries or, or firewood. And while we think of it as an ancient protocol, I think it also has important contemporary resonance. Um, if we could think about how to align our current extractive economy with an economy of reciprocity, with an economy of not wasting, of, of respecting the integrity of those beings, um, an economy based on sharing, and most importantly, an economy based on reciprocity, so that we always are asking the question, what can we give back? in order for the world to continue in return for the gifts that we've been given. And this is not only indigenous philosophy, 
it's systems ecology. Mm -hmm. We know what it is that, that keeps the world in balance, keeps the cycles moving. And they're what we call negative feedback loops, i.e. reciprocity, to know that you can never take without replenishment. And so in this way, the spiritual teachings and the deeply pragmatic teachings are aligned in the honorable harvest. So I know that you've been skeptical of the concept which is very widely spread among uh, people who are environmentally oriented of sustainability. What's problematic for you about that concept? Well, it's a slippery word, isn't it? Um, and there's so many different definitions. The one that is problematic for me are that whole suite of definitions that are all about how can we devise strategies, engineer systems in such a way that we can keep taking from the world. That's essentially what most of our sustainability formulations are. But in our traditional teachings, what we're told is that we shouldn't be thinking only about what we can take, but what we can give. And so my critique of those sustainability definitions is they leave out the reciprocity. What we need to be thinking about is not sustainability of our own population, but how can we live in mutually sustaining ways with all of the rest of the beings. So the um, title uh, of your talk tonight is We the People. Tell us how you understand that concept, that phrase. I was so glad to encounter that we the people theme because it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to really inquire about what, what does we mean. And very interestingly, in the Potawatomi language, we don't have one we. Mm. In our grammatical structure, we have two different we's. One is the inclusive we, we all. But we also have a grammatical case for we, but not you the exclusive we. So there was a sensitivity, is a sensitivity in our culture to that question, what do we mean we? Who is included? So in my talk, I certainly talk about the ways in which indigenous peoples are, and in many cases, I would say most cases, are not included in decision-making about their their lands and their and uh, the, our our relatives, our our other beings. So we, the people, which we think of as the citizenry of the United States, often does not include native people. And we talk about examples left and right, from from Standing Rock to the Bears Ears National Monument, where native people's voices have been systematically excluded from that decision making. But I also want to talk about we the people in terms not of who we think we are, but who we think people are. And in, in Western culture, we really are embedded in, West, in human exceptionalism, right? To think that humans, above all the other millions of species with whom we share the planet, have certain rights to the, to the wealth of this world that other species don't have. And to think about how can we think about the people more broadly to be inclusive of indigenous thinking of those maples as people, as those bears as, as people, as those mountains as people. And what if we lived in a world that had economic and indeed legal structures which understood the personhood of all beings. 
And this is an ancient philosophical concept of the indigenous worldview, but what we also see it is today being manifest in the emerging rights of nature movement. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that a river has a right to be, a river has a right to be whole and healthy and to exist and to regenerate without our interfering with it. And as we know in the Maori homelands of New Zealand, the sacred Wanganui River is now a legal person. There are lots of examples happening all over the planet and it's particularly compelling when we think about in the United States that human beings are understood as legal persons, right? Not the trees, not the ones who truly sustain us, just human beings, and of course, corporations. That corporations have, have legal standing that a river does not. And so in this way, the rights of nature movement fundamentally challenges this paradigm that, that of human exceptionalism, that we um, can own other beings and that, that we get to decide their fate and ultimately to exploit them. We live in a time when many human beings suffer from very modern afflictions of alienation and despair. How can we reclaim relationships with each other and with nature, and how can we nurture hope at this time, which is, I think, many people experience it as a very dark time? There's a lot wrapped up in your question. And one of the things that I like, that I take comfort in when I get to that place of thinking about uh, of feeling despair against all these powerful forces that are arrayed against um, the, the living beings and indeed arrayed against us as human beings, is that the natural world is full of intelligences other than ours. I look to the living world as a source of examples for how we might live together, how we might imagine new ways of, of being. And when I look at an industrial wasteland, like the ones that are around in my homeland of Onondaga Lake, and I look at those plants who are colonizing 30 feet of industrial waste, um, the living world hasn't given up, and, and we can't either. We have to be creative. We have to really be rooted in living systems, in reciprocity. We are a member of this democracy of species. And when we reclaim our positions, not as masters of the universe, but as, as, as humble beings, as what my Haudenosaunee colleagues call being the younger brothers of creation, in that place with care and respect and reciprocity for all of the other beings, that's where the hope lies for me. So tell us about the work of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. What goes on there? The mission of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment is really to bring together these great intellectual traditions of earth caretaking, um, traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous philosophy, and the tools of Western science. 
know what I said, the tools of Western science, not necessarily the Western scientific worldview, mm -hmm. which is different than science. Mm -hmm. um, they are different. We're conflating economy and governance into the scientific worldview. But if we think about Western science as a set of very powerful, very human tools, if we can think about guiding those tools with these principles of respect, of reverence, of reciprocity, of thinking about the world not as our property, not resources for which we have rights, but gifts for which we have responsibility. What if we could bring those powerful ways of knowing together uh, for our shared concerns, for ourselves, and for all of our, our more than human relatives? That's what we're really striving for in the center, and it's to illuminate these multiple ways of knowing, to think about indigenous science, indigenous philosophy, and how we might use that as a guide. And we're doing it through curriculum building. We train, I would say, the bulk of the natural resource managers for our region of the country, and our goal is that they won't graduate with knowing about treaty, without knowing about treaty rights, mm -hmm. um, that they don't that they are aware of traditional knowledge and the appropriate respectful protocols for engaging it in doing environmental science. So we like to think that we're training allies, toward allies for the land and allies for, for Native people. So we're, we, we do it through curriculum development, through partnerships with Indian nations and with tribal colleges to do both research, education, and, and outreach and service to Native communities as well. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, if you go to any of the websites that uh, feature your work and talk about you, in the bios there, um, one of the characteristics that is attributed to you as a professional is mother, that you're a mother. Why is your identity as a mother integral to your work as a plant biologist? I found it really important to write my bio biographies in that way, to put what I feel as the most important first. Often we start to identify ourselves with our institutional affiliations and, a, and an accreditation process um, from the outside, but who are we really? So I want to always start with that. Um, in large part because it, it comes from a place of responsibility, for responsibility for continuing life. And uh, I feel like that is my most important role in, in the world, so I, I want to lead with that. It turns out I, I have time for one more question, brief one. Um, what are you working on now? Any new projects you want to share? I am working on a new writing project. And one of the things that I've discovered from the feedback from Braiding Sweetgrass, which has created such a community of, 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 of activists and artists and, and lovers of, of, of the earth, is to now try to reach beyond that circle, to really try to cultivate what I think of as ecological compassion mm. for the personhood of other beings. And so I'm working on a, a new collection of stories that are an intertwining of traditional ways and, 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 um, and the lives of other beings so that we really come to understand in a, in a, a personal way the personhood of other beings and in this way support this burgeoning movement of the rights of nature. Well, we will look forward to the completion of that project. Me too. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Robin, for taking the time and speaking with us today. It's Thanks. been a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Robin Wall Kimmerer, Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. She's also the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Kimmerer gave a lecture titled, We the People, Expanding the Circle of Citizenship at the University of Oregon on March 13, 2018, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2017-18 Clark Lecturer in the Humanities. The lecture was part of the We the People series. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.